you know, in the midst of all of this chaos in our world right now, I am encouraged because Jesus is on the move. Jesus is at work all over the world, drawing people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation to himself. And even when you can't see it, even when you can't feel it, Jesus is at work. He is calling people to himself. And when he calls them to himself, he is drawing them to the ability to see that he is the Christ. He is the Messiah, which is the great confession that Simon Peter makes in Mark chapter Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Mark chapter 8. And as you're turning there, for those kids who are watching online and for those who are in this room, I'm stoked that you're in here and that you're engaging with us as you're listening to the sermon. Let me encourage you. You can draw pictures. You can draw out what you hear from the text and that will maybe help you grow more in love with Jesus and help you understand what's happening here in the text. As many of you all can see on stage, we have a VBS set up behind us. Y'all, I try so hard to avoid the trains in Alabaster and they follow me all the way here. I can't get away from them. But we have Vacation Bible School coming up in a couple of weeks. It's going to be different. It will not be here on campus. We'll be meeting in people's backyards. If you're interested in connecting and learning more about that, you can go to our website, gowestwood.org. In our sermon series, as we walk through the gospel of Mark together, we are indeed seeing Jesus on the move. This is a fast-paced, hard-hitting book in which we see Jesus. He is healing the sick. He's casting out demons. He's raising the dead. He's walking on a water. He's calming storms with just a word. We saw last week where Jesus fed 4,000 with just a few loaves of bread. He, he rebukes Pharisees who are not listening to him and rejecting who he is. We see Jesus who's teaching and instructing his disciples on who he really is as the Christ, as the promised Messiah. We see Jesus who heals a blind man by spitting into his eyes. And we see a work of God in his heart and in his life. And then we see where Jesus takes his disciples on a retreat. He gets them away from the crowds. He gets them away from the life and rhythm of ministry to Caesarea Philippi. And it's in this city that he has this important conversation in Mark chapter 8, beginning with verse 27. The scripture says, Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? They answered him, John the Baptist, others, Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And he strictly warned them to tell no one about him. Then he began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed and rise after three days. He spoke openly about this. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking about God's concerns, but human 
concerns. In the text, we see where Jesus is pointing these disciples to himself as the Messiah who has come for them and for the world. I want you to notice these three truths right here in the text. First, I want you to see Peter making the great confession. Peter makes the great confession. Here he is with the disciples. Jesus is on the outskirts of Caesarea Philippi. Now, Caesarea Philippi is a Roman city. Caesarea, named after Caesar Augustus. Uh, Philippi, named after King Herod's son, Philip, who named the city after himself. So Caesarea Philippi. This is a city that is steeped in idolatry and pagan worship of false gods. In fact, I took a picture. Uh, I want you to see uh, that uh, there at Caesarea Philippi, and this is a rock formation. It's at this spot that Jesus has this conversation with his disciples. Now, those indentions, those carvings in the rocks are where they would put the god Pan. Pan was a Greek god that was half goat and half man. And it was there that they would have grotesque, immoral worship. And since there are children who are here listening and watching, parents, I need you to understand I'm not saying a lot right here. But this is where evil behavior would take place. People would go here and they would worship in hopes that Pan would give them good crops and healthy children. The second picture I want to show you guys, if you can pull it back up there for me, it's a picture of Christy and I. And over Christy's shoulder, you see a big cave. Right there at that spot, the mouth of the cave, there used to be a large temple that Herod the Great built for the worship of various Roman gods. Ancient pagans believed that this cave was the gate to the underworld, that it was indeed the gates of hell. And it's this spot that Jesus chose to bring his disciples. And he asks them, verse 27, who do people say that I am? Jesus, the master teacher, is drawing out the deep well of the hearts of the disciples by asking two simple questions. It's kind of like that random phone number you get around election season, where if you answer it and they say, tell us what you think about this candidate. Tell us what you think about that candidate. Here Jesus is drawing out the disciples by asking, who do men say that I am? What is everybody else saying about me? And they respond there, verse 27. Some say John the Baptist. Now we know this because we go back to chapter six where King Herod, he hears about Jesus and he is fearful that Jesus is John the Baptist come back from the dead. And he's fearful because King Herod is the one who beheaded John the Baptist. And so, yeah, some people are thinking, man, is Jesus just John the Baptist? Others are thinking, no, he's, he's Elijah or he's one of the Old Testament prophets like Jeremiah or Isaiah. It's interesting. The people still don't have a good grasp of who Jesus is. Even when Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate, the night where he was arrested, Pontius Pilate asks him, who are you? Are you the king of the Jews? There was this pursuit of seeking to understand the identity of Jesus. You and I have the benefit at this point in history in which we have 2020 vision. We can look backwards in scripture and see who Jesus really was. But at the time, people did not know who Jesus really was. 
And for 2,000 years, people have sought to identify who Jesus really is. Even to this day, there are some who try to define Jesus based upon what they want him to be. Some people will politicize Jesus and they'll seek to make him as one who's a partisan activist to justify their agenda. They'll say, Jesus stands on our side, so you need to vote for us. Some have militarized Jesus. They say Jesus is the means for conquest. Jesus is on our side, so we can go to war. Some have sought to moralize Jesus, and they want to make him a professor of ethics. He's like a tie-dyed hippie professor who wants everyone to get along. Some people have even culturalized Jesus. They want to make him just like them. Here in the South, some see Jesus as a religious figure who just fixes our problems and wants to make us happy. Some here in the South say, I'll just wear a cross around my neck, I'll drink my sweet tea, I'll go to church on Sunday and live the rest of my life however I want to. But to this day, people want a Jesus that never disagrees with them. They want a Jesus who wants them to always be happy regardless of their choices. Hear me, that's not the Jesus of the Bible. We come to Jesus on his terms, not on ours. He is the one who reveals himself in scripture as the one who is the true son of God who came to take away the sins of the world. If we try to make a Jesus that looks like us or is different than the one as revealed in scripture, we have just made an idol. You see, Jesus refuses to be pigeonholed or defined by what we think he should be like. Jesus is not a political pundit. Jesus is not a military general. Jesus is not a motivational guru. Jesus is not a therapist who will always agree with you. Jesus is not a genie who gives you what you want. Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. That is who he is and how he has revealed himself in scripture. But then it's time for Jesus to get personal. There in the text we see in verse 27, excuse me, verse 29. But who do you say that I am? Ah, now we're getting to the heart of the matter. This is not a question that you can squirm out of. You can't hem and haw out of this one. Jesus, like a master interrogator, he's nailing his disciples down. Simon Peter, the spokesman of the group, steps up like Hank Aaron at Fulton County Stadium, and he says, you are the Christ. Wham! Crushes it deep. Home run. Exactly right. You are the Messiah, or the Greek word, you are the Christ. That word means anointed one. You are the one who we have been looking for throughout the Old Testament. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah that Moses and the prophets were saying would one day come. This is who you are. Hear me on this. To follow Jesus, you must confess Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, I'm not talking about a religious chant. I'm not talking about a simple recitation from the mind. This is from the bottom of your heart in which you declare, Jesus, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. You're my Lord. You are my Savior. Question, is that you? Is Jesus the Christ over your life? Have you confessed him? You are Lord. You are King. And I submit my life completely to you. 
You see, Simon Peter, he got it. And he's declaring from the bottom of his soul this great confession of the Christian faith, Jesus is the Christ. Matthew, in his account of this conversation, he adds in Matthew 16, 18, a response of Jesus, in which Jesus says, and I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. You see, the rock on which Jesus builds his church is not Peter. It's abundantly clear throughout Scripture that Jesus is the foundation of the church and Jesus is the head of the church. Peter is not the foundation. What's Jesus doing here in Matthew 16, 18? Jesus is doing a play on words. He is saying this Mount Everest truth that Peter just said is coming from the mouth of little pebble, Peter, little rock. Jesus here is saying this incredible truth that I am the Christ, that I am the Messiah, that is what I'm gonna build my church upon, upon me. You see, the church of Jesus Christ is built upon Jesus Christ. And Jesus even emphasizes this. Verse 18, he says, this is my church. He's highlighting that he alone is the architect of his church, the builder of his church, the owner of his church, the Lord of his church. Jesus is saying, Peter, the church is built upon me in this confession that you just made. Now remember, Jesus intentionally brought his disciples to this specific spot against the backdrop of various gods of idol worship taking place all around them. And against this backdrop of a huge rock formation next to a mountain. And this, he says, this is the confession. I am the rock. Just as you see this rock behind me, I am the rock as Jesus, as the one who's the foundation of the church on which the church will be built. And the gates of Hades... Remember that little cave off to the side? And the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. Nothing can stop the church. Nothing can stop the church. Nothing can stop the church. The church has faced famine persecution, sword, bullying, beatings, hangings, drownings, beheadings, shootings, and sufferings for thousands of years, and the church of Jesus Christ marches on. The church of Jesus Christ is unstoppable. Every time Satan thinks he has a win by seeking to snuff us out, he multiplies the effort. Well, let's remember this. This church, this is not your church. This church is not my church. This is Jesus' church. And he bought her with his precious blood. And he who purchased her, he who loves her, will protect her. He will preserve her even to the end of the age. 
This thing is, for me, one of the hardest parts about this pandemic is that it's kept us apart from one another. There's value, it's biblical, in which we gather, we gotta be be together. And as we go through this season for as long as this is gonna take, we wanna be wise, we wanna protect the vulnerable, protect those who are not healthy. And I long for the day in which we can come together and celebrate. And in my mind, I've got so many celebration plans for that day, we can get everybody back in the room together, it's gonna be bananas, okay? I may rappel down from the roof. I don't know. (laughs) But you see, what the beauty is that there's nothing that can stop us. You can't defeat the church. Jesus says not even the gates of hell can stop her. So what we see in the text in Mark 8 is that Jesus makes this great confession. But I want you to see, number two, that Jesus predicts his crucifixion. After Peter makes the great confession, Jesus reveals the first of several predictions of his upcoming suffering and death. Jesus is projecting, he is prophesying, he is foretelling and foretelling how he's going to die. He tells them, verse 31, that it was necessary. It has to happen this way. That the Son of Man must suffer, must be rejected, must be killed. This was what Jesus came to do. He came to die. The cross was Jesus' ultimate mission. For it is through the cross alone that sinful man can be restored back into a right relationship with God. You see, the cross was not a shock to Jesus. God is never surprised. Does that surprise you? God is never caught off guard. He knew what was ahead of him the entire time. As the Christ, Jesus knew what he had come to do. You see, the cross was God's plan from the very beginning. You remember back in Genesis chapter three, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God brought judgment upon the serpent, judgment upon Satan, and says, you are going to strike his heel, Genesis three fifteen. Ultimately, he's pointing to the cross. He's gonna crush your head. David prophesies in Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Who said that? It began with David in Psalm 22. Jesus fulfills it while he's hanging on the cross. In fact, in Psalm 22, it tells us that the Messiah would be pierced in his hands and in his feet. That's 800 years before crucifixion was ever invented. You get to Isaiah 53, where it says that he will not only stand before his shears, but he will be like a sheep to the slaughter. Zechariah, the Lord says, they will look on me whom they have pierced. The cross has always been God's plan through which he would redeem the world. And he has made the way through the work of Jesus to rescue and redeem the world. Before the foundations of the earth had ever been laid, God knew that his son would come to rescue mankind from sin and death through the cross. Even Peter would one day understand In Acts 2, Peter stands up at Pentecost full of the Holy Spirit. And he says, this Jesus was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge. You see, the cross was God's plan from the beginning to be the means through which mankind would be rescued from sin and death. 
All of us outside of Christ are sinners in under God's wrath. We deserve God's judgment. But God loves us so much that he puts his wrath on his son instead. He takes the judgment that we deserve and he places it upon his son at the cross. You see, God's justice and God's mercy meet at the cross of Jesus Christ. For it's at the cross, the justice of God to punish sin is placed upon Jesus. And the cross, we see the mercy of God is realized in Jesus. So now God is both just and the justifier for all who trust in Jesus. Let me say that again. God is just and the justifier of all who trust in Jesus. Let me say it like this. At the cross, Jesus was treated as we deserve. That's justice. So that we are treated as he deserves. That's mercy. Do you see the power and the beauty of the cross? Do you see why Jesus was immovable, unshakable in his commitment to go to the cross, he had a bigger purpose in view than the disciples could understand or even see. Jesus was up to something bigger. And you know what's so great? Because Jesus came, because he suffered, because he took the terrible, grueling, awful death, he did it to rescue you. And the best news of all, he's not dead. Verse 31, the son of man will be killed and he will rise. Jesus knew that the cross was not the end. He knew that he would be vindicated. He knew that the grave couldn't hold him. And that is our hope as followers of Jesus. Bank your soul upon Jesus Believe upon him. Turn away from your sin. Repent. Don't go that way anymore. And turn and trust in Jesus who went to the cross because he loves you. And he's made a way for you to be restored back to God. The third truth we see in the text is that Jesus makes a stern correction. At this point in history, Peter did not understand. Verse 32, Peter took him aside and and began to rebuke Jesus. Can you imagine the gumption? (laughs) Peter says, Jesus, let me talk to you for a minute. (laughs) Pulls him aside face to face. How dare you say that you're going to go to a cross? What, what, what are you thinking? You're discouraging the disciples. You're discouraging all of us. Why would you even say that? You see, Peter did not want Jesus to have that kind of future. Why? Peter wanted a Messiah who would have power. 
He wanted a Messiah who would not suffer. He wanted a Messiah who would be influential with the crowds. He'd be a go-getter. He'd be a mover and a shaker. He'd have influence and persuasion. Peter did not want a Messiah with suffering. He did not want a Messiah who would go to a shameful death on a cross. People today want the same thing. People want a Messiah who helps them climb the corporate ladder. People want a Messiah who will make them healthy and wealthy. People want a Messiah who will make them feel good regardless of their sinful choices. People want a Messiah who's popular and funny and one who's going to say, hey, I'm with you and I'm your best friend and your buddy. You can do whatever you want. They don't want a Messiah who says, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross and follow me. They don't want a Messiah who says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own soul? They don't want a Messiah who says, for the Son of Man came not to, uh, came not to uh, be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. They don't want a Messiah who says, if you want to be first, you've got to be last and you've got to be slave of all. Well, it's fascinating here. In a matter of three verses, Peter went from speaking for God to speaking for Satan. Why did Jesus call Peter Satan, verse 33? Well, if you remember in Matthew chapter 4, Satan sought to tempt Jesus with all the kingdoms of the world. Bow down and worship me and you get all of this. Satan was seeking to lure Jesus away from the cross. He's seeking to lure him away from suffering. Lure him away from suffering under God's wrath and eventual death. Satan is offering a cheap throne with no cross. And that's what Peter's doing here. Peter is not gently tweaking Jesus' thinking. He is rebuking Jesus. That word for rebuke is used back in Mark chapter 1 in which Jesus rebuked Uh, evil spirits. So now Peter is rebuking the Messiah the same way the Messiah rebuked demons. Westwood, verse 33 is a warning. If you and I are not careful, we can be used by Satan. We can't be filled by Satan. Demons cannot possess those who have the spirit, but we can still be used by Satan if we're walking according to the flesh if we're seeking the fame of our name, if we're living for ourselves, if we're not careful, you and I are in danger of being used by Satan if we act or speak contrary to Scripture. This is why it matters, John 15, that you abide in Jesus. It matters that you know the word and you're soaking your life in the word because we can get distracted just like Peter and we can think that this worldly possession is what we desire more than the suffering that God has in store. We must abide in Christ and stay close to him to prevent this. So Jesus turns and he faces all the disciples, verse 33, because Peter was just speaking for the rest of them. They're thinking the same thing. And he refuses to let anything get between him and his mission. To not experience suffering, to not be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, to not be killed, to not rise on the third day would mean eternal judgment for all of mankind. Jesus would not allow that to happen. You see, if Jesus had not suffered, you and I were still unforgiven. If Jesus had not died, we are still headed for hell. 
If Jesus had not defeated death, we're still under judgment. But what was considered the worst news at that moment by the disciples would eventually turn out to be the best news that the world has ever heard. Jesus was up to something bigger because it's through the death and resurrection of Jesus, all who believe upon him are saved. So Kenneth, what are you calling us to do? What's the task? And it's your impact point, it's this. Confess Jesus as Messiah over your heart and life. Think about it. Probably the most important question you ever answer will be the one that Jesus asks right here in the text. Who do you say that I am? How you answer that not only affects the kind of life that you live, it affects where you'll be in five years and in five billion years. If you do not know Jesus today, confess him as Lord. Say, Jesus, I believe you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God, my Lord and my savior. I submit and surrender my life completely to you. I give up my old life and I say, Jesus, you're mine. I want all of you. Here I am. I'm yours. You come to that point and you get where Simon Peter was. You make the great confession. So how how do you answer that question? Jesus asks you today, who do you say that I am? Let us pray.